Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined this week by the the uh, old familiar Tim McIntosh and our new partner here on Close Reads, Jonathan Rogers. Tim and Jonathan, how's it going? It's going pretty well. It's going well, David. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> so last week we had Heidi and, and Jonathan on together, and this week we have, we have Tim, we have you back for the first time in a little while with Jonathan. Mm-hmm. This is your first time on the show with Jonathan. So I'm curious, are there any, is there anything you need to say to him? Like any warnings you need to offer to him about uh, how you like the podcast to be done or any like temperament? You're like, you're a temper, you're an actor. You There's like probably temperamental actor stuff you need to get across, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> man, I wish I had something really clever to say. Like I, I started to make a joke about having peeled grapes in the green room, but that doesn't really work in, on an internet format. <laughs> you to peel your own grapes. Yeah, I got to peel my own grapes. Yeah, what's with that? Uh, we uh, we do have your um, we do have your bag of grapefruit. It's fresh picked this morning Wonderful. on its way. And we have the, uh, we know you only drink Fiji water. So we've got, we've, yeah. that'll be, that'll be right outside for, you know, right outside the room when we're done here. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yep. Um, email, e- you can email it to me during the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are here to discuss another American short story and that is Ambrose Bierce's an occurrence at Owl Creek bridge. Uh, thank you for the feedback on the conversation about, uh, Rip Van Winkle and, um, uh, it's been cool to see the number of people who have never read some of these stories, uh, getting excited about them. And then also just the people who maybe read them back when they were in high school uh, or college and, and kind of getting excited as they reread them. I think these are, uh, they're fun stories. Um, they're intriguing stories. And so, uh, you know, I thought if we're going to do a series on short stories, they should also have some, some, uh, I don't know, some fun to them. <laughs> um, before we get into this week's conversation, though, I need to say a word from our sponsor. And that sponsor is Tim. Can you give us the old drum roll? Thing. The sponsor for this week's Close Read podcast is brought to you. Well, it is. Wow. You, you know, I've done this like <laughs> they're actually, they're actually bringing it, right, David? Aren't What's they that? the ones that are bringing it? It's yeah. like a meta sponsor. Yeah, There's exactly. a sponsor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's funny that you say it's meta because we reserved the July podcast sponsorship to be brought to you by you. It's brought to you by the listeners who are our Patreon supporters. And we just wanted to give a a shout out to everybody who has been supporting Close Reads over the last year or so since we started the Patreon. Um, It... It's been a huge help. Um, hopefully, everyone has really, you know, enjoyed some of the gifts that they got, uh, including the the ongoing uh, posts when we, you know, like when we share the talks that Tim and Angelina have have given at conferences and things like that. So, we wanted to reserve the month of July to uh, to thank all the Patreon supporters who have who have been here with us. Um, so many of you have been listening for what three years now, or however long we've been doing this show. Um, and we just want to say thank you. So, so thank you. Thank you for making this thank show you. possible and for listening, um, and for joining the conversation and for commenting and for, um, sending in, you know, your complaints. And I don't mean that, like, I don't mean that joke. I'm like, I'm serious. Thank you for when you, when there's something wrong and you let us know it, we appreciate the feedback. So, uh, thank you for all of that. Thank you for being a part of the community. Um, Jonathan so, was kidding when he said that it was a meta sponsor, but that like, that's kind of what this was. Yeah, it was kind of, that's what I got hung up on the language of it. Cause in my head, as I'm saying it, it was like, it's brought to you. It's sponsored. It just threw me all off. And you know, you're bringing it to yourself. Yeah. You're Listen. bringing, you're bringing the show to yourself. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, so thank you. Thank you again for doing that. If you, I mean, I guess I'll just say it. If you want to be a Patreon supporter and you want the cool stuff that goes with that, the mugs, the t-shirts, the access to Tim and Angelina's wisdom, then you can go to patreon.com slash close reads and you can uh, sign up. There's even as little as a $2 a month level. That's like half a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And, uh, you know, you can, you can be a part of that. Um, and we would certainly be grateful for that, but to everyone who's been supporting it, we are exceedingly grateful. Um, and can really only do this because of you all. So, um, David, I got a question for you. What's that? Have you recently received or not recently, anytime received a complaint. And when you read the complaint, you just kind of thought to yourself, thank you. I, I needed to read this. Thank you. Oh, like an email from a listener? Oh, yeah. 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 Like, like what? Can you share one? Share uh, one about Tim. Do yeah, you share one about me. Do you have one in particular <laughs> that in mind right now? It feels like a... No, 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 no. This okay. is a wide open question. This is a genuine... Oh, I don't... Um, you, well, I'm not I, trying to steer it anywhere. I usually would... If I was going to say something like this in the air, I would come prepared. You'd, you'd think. Um, no, I don't have one in particular in mind. I, about once a week, we receive... I receive at least once a week, I receive an email or something from someone who just says, thank you for um, giving us the conversations we don't get anywhere else. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, that's great. And that's, you know, that, you know, we're kind of doing it because we want to have the conversations too. Yeah. So, you know, we get that, to get that feeling. Um, I think it's one of the things I really um, find um, that I'm, that I'm grateful for is that we can provide those kind of conversations for, this is going to sound, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but for like the homeschool mom, for example, mm-hmm. who doesn't, who spends her day in the trenches with her kid mm-hmm. and, you know, doing a lot, uh, you know, balancing the schoolwork and the housework and, you know, being a wife and all those other kinds of things that go, go into that, but also trying to like be so committed to educating herself. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of an, that's an inspiring person. I think, um, the, the homeschool mom who, who, knows that to do a good job homeschooling, she needs to feed herself. And so there is a, um, those kind of moms are, there's like, there's an energy and a desire to learn and a humility about them so often that is inspiring. And that kind of makes, really makes me want to keep doing this show. Mm -hmm. Um, So that I love doing the show for people like that. And I don't just mean the homeschool moms have those characteristics, but often there are so many homeschool moms who, who, that, you know, the desire to learn and the humility at the same time, they go closely together. And so many of you who are listening, who, who are in that demographic, so to speak, uh, don't think of yourself as being very smart or whatever. And that, that turns out that that's not true for most of you. I've met all of you, but for most of you, that's not true. And it turns out you are, you know, that your desire to learn and your humility, those two things being tied together, um, are, I don't know if it's masking, but there, there's a, there is an intelligence among so many homeschool moms that, that I think comes out in these conversations. So we talked about David probably after the last Circe conference, I did a little colloquy about a short story. And I think probably 90% of the people that were in the colloquy were homeschool moms. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan, you can probably speak to this. I, I really thought at the end of the conversation, it was so first rate. It was of such a high quality. And I thought, gosh, this is much more advanced than most of the graduate degree seminar work that I've been a part of. Um, and it was, it was 90% homeschool moms. And I have a feeling that 
I don't know, I'm going to speak for them that a lot of them probably struggle with this sense that like, Oh, I just, you know, I don't really have a great education. I don't really have much to say on that. Right. Yeah. My experience, David, and it sounds like you're the same, the same thing is <laughs> it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, so often in say you mentioned graduate seminars, yeah. these are people who are trying to do things to the text instead of receiving it, you know, they're, yeah. they're using instead of receiving to, to mm. use that language yeah. from, yeah, from yeah, Lewis. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's just not where, where it's at is in terms of, of, uh, what we're even doing when we read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I completely agree with everything y'all are saying that the homeschool moms I, I had conversations with about literature or, or writing. You know, I have a lot of homeschool moms that take my online writing classes Yeah, and, uh, it's just so, so refreshing and, and so, so much good things going on. And so mm. that's one of the things I love about Cersei too, is, is feeding, you know, th- this, this idea of feeding the, the grown up, not, not just feeding the children or Dave, you put it in terms of you know, moms being willing to, to learn so they can teach better uh, or maybe I should say parents, you know, learning so they can teach better. There's also just a strong sense. I get the impression of people being willing to just to grow for their own sake. And, and that, redounds to their children of course but um but this has been uh, I, I just i love the the opportunities that you offer as, as an organization and cersei seriously to the to the um, to the parents well it's uh it's also great to have both of you uh being a part of it so um for the sake of those parents let's dive right in um to an occurrence at owl creek bridge by ambrose bierce are either of you uh previously familiar with ambrose bierce I was a little bit, a very little bit. I read this in high school or the story in high school, maybe in college. Uh, and I knew the devil's dictionary a little bit, but beyond right. that, I just did a little research on his life, which I try to not do, but I felt so in the dark on him that I, I, I read about his biography. Yeah. How about you, Jonathan? Yeah, I, I read him in high school. I read this story in high school and I've read it once or twice since then. Uh, but like you, Tim, I was I was woefully ignorant. I, I didn't realize I knew he was a soldier, but I didn't realize he was he was a real soldier. I mean, he was yeah. Um, and I, Christy Stevens, I think it was, posted something on the Closely Reads podcast Facebook thing. Um, a po- well, a a podcast episode about Ambrose Bierce from Stuff You Should Know or something like that. And I listened to that today. It was so fascinating. It was. I listened to that same thing today. Yeah. I've gone down an Ambrose Bierce rabbit hole all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I certainly wouldn't never want to pull someone out of that. Maybe we should just stay in the hole for a while. Um, well, we, maybe we, it might be nice. I mean, if, if we're all, if all three of us, maybe David, do you feel like you were more familiar with Ambrose Bierce? Well, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do some biography about the man before we get into the story, which would be kind of, that's not the way you ordinarily do things. Would that be um, breaking some sort of unspoken tradition? David? <laughs> um, I, I suppose it would be because it's not been tradition previously. Um, I don't have a problem with, I mean, he, I think, you know, so there's a, there's two ways of looking at this. On the one hand, there's like, are we looking at someone's biography Right. Just so that we can figure out all the answers to the story. Like, because we figure it, we think it's going to give us every answer that we could ever come up with and like try to figure out exactly what his, his like mo- the moral he's trying to get across is. Or are we looking at his worldview, A, because it's, it's interesting and fascinating uh, and, and B, because it can help us try to get a sense of 
what it of the way he looks at the world. Um, I think those are two different things. And I, I mean, I, I mean, I find author biography very interesting. I've got a whole podcast in the works that's specifically about telling the stories of authors' lives. So, um, by all means, I don't, I don't care. You, I'll just sit over here. You guys talk for a while though, because I. It turns out you guys are um, suddenly like aficionados of animals. Pros, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, pro. Yes, I, I have been a professional for about five hours now. <laughs> you went through the um, the the graduate podcast course on Ambrose Bruce. That's right. Okay, here's what I want to do though. Let's let's look yeah. at it. Let's do it this way. Each each of you pick two things. We don't have time to tell the whole story, I don't think. Yeah. So if each of you would pick two things about his life in the things that you listened to and the things that you read that just surprised you or excited you or interested you. Can we do it that way? Instead of just sure, yeah. being like, this I'm is... I'm sure we're going to pick the same two things, though. Yeah, I well, bet we are. I'll, okay, oh. well, then what we'll do is I'll let you... You each get to say one and then we'll alternate. So okay. Jonathan, Jonathan, you're the guest, so I'm going to let you yeah. go first. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go first, but I also don't want Tim stealing my second one. But anyway, <laughs> well, choose wisely then. He was with, so he was with the Army of Tennessee, um, Grant's army, going all over Tennessee, and and, and then he was, you know, so he was at Shiloh, um, he was at uh, Stones River in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. He was in the Atlanta campaign, and um, Tim, you're you're from Atlanta, right? Yeah, I'm going to have to like work through this a little bit. We're going to have to do a little therapy on the air about this <laughs> fact that you're bringing yeah. up. <laughs> I know. He's, he, went up, he went went all over my state and your state shooting people. <laughs> and uh, so Shiloh, it, so then, then he, was, he was at Chickamauga, got shot at, no, didn't get shot at Chickamauga, got shot, shot at um, Kennesaw, I guess. Is that right? Anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm sure it mattered to yeah, him, sure. but it doesn't matter which location it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he actually, and so he got badly injured at uh, in the Atlanta campaign, um, went home for a little while, but then came back for the Battle of Franklin and the Battle of Nashville, hmm. um, although he didn't fight. So that was fascinating to me. And he, and he wrote an account of the Battle of Franklin, which I'd never known. I, I taught a class about the Battle of Franklin at um, New College Franklin a couple of years ago, huh. but didn't know Ambrose Beers was here hanging out. So anyway, that's that's my that just the fact that he was that he was that involved in Grant's army mm-hmm. in uh, the American Civil War was pretty fascinating. And listed when he was eighteen years old. Is that your fact, or is that a building on his? No, fact? that's, yeah, he, that's no, not my just, fact. Just, that's his fact. No, <laughs> no, 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 it's definitely not. It's definitely not because I want to I want to try to probe and find Jonathan's second fact, but I have a feeling. Okay, so mine's going to segue from that. It's just about the injury that Jonathan mentioned that. Mm. We, we can't remember which battle it was in, but it seems like his personality kind of took on a different flavor after this injury. And maybe it was not the injury. Maybe it was just the, how extremely trying the civil war was on every single person that was involved yeah. in any way. Yeah. But he yeah. seems to yeah. have kind of moved into a more, um, he's best known outside of his fiction as a cynic and (laughs) the the devil's dictionary gives plenty of ambition for that, for that, I don't know, observation. But I just was, I didn't know that he had suffered a pretty serious head injury and that he, it looks, sounds like had a, had a kind of significant um, change in his personality and people hypothesized that maybe it was some form of PSD before people Tim, diagnosed as PSD. Tim, did, did you read that 
um, the bullet from his from his getting shot in the head stayed in his head? No, it did. I don't know if it stayed for the rest of his life, but they couldn't remove it. They, I know they didn't remove it on the battlefield, and and they, I, I think it might have stayed the rest of his life. Oh dear, is that your second wow. fact? No, that no, that's not a fact. <laughs> yes, it that was. was a fact. I made it up. <laughs> okay, what's your second fact? Your second uh, fact? Oh, we're going to say the same thing, Jonathan. I know we're going to say the same thing. I know. We should say it in, in, in chorus. He went, when he was 70, in his 70s, he went down to Mexico to chase around uh, Pancho Villa and disappeared. Was that your fact, Tim? No, it wasn't. I mean, how could that's that not a great be one. Yeah. yeah. They don't know the date of his death. Yeah, they say it's either 13 or, 1913 or 1914. Mine was that he was hired by William Randolph Hearst and basically given a long leash to just write whatever he wanted to write for, I think, the San Francisco Gazette. And he ended up being sent to D.C. by William Randolph Hearst to kind of journalistically prosecute um, one of Hearst's political enemies. <laughs> yeah. And he wasn't a pawn. He, he sounded like he wanted to do it. Um, but, yeah, he yeah. was fascinating. I, was, I can't believe this is the first I've, I've known about all this stuff. Right. Well, okay. So what we'll say then is, uh, I, I, people can go listen to that other podcast if they want to learn more. Um, but I, I, his, his experiences in the war certainly, um, play into what we're getting out of an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. And there's also another story about Chickamauga, um, where he kind of describes the battlefield. And I recommend that one as well. It doesn't have quite the the twist, I, I guess that the, the story does. So, 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 um, Jonathan, you said you read this, you've read this story a couple of times since, you know, high school, between high school and now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Tim, had you read it before? High school or college? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a pretty common and pretty commonly anthologized story. So I was thinking about that fact that it's commonly anthologized, uh, and commonly read therefore in, high schools and colleges and things like that. And so I was wondering what, what does close reads have to offer for a story that a lot of people have already read and already know how it ends. Um, so what I need you, I need you guys to tell me what, what yes, is close. I mean, read, what is close. Reads I don't want to offer? speak for Jonathan, but just off the top of my head, profound and unique insights. <laughs> right, that's, <laughs> that's just kind of what uh, i think that we're bringing to the table okay well now that you set the bar really high we probably <laughs> should just give up while we're ahead um so so but i was you know I was, uh, it got me thinking like we probably don't need to like what are the kind of things that everybody is going to already have talked about in the story right mm-hmm. i, I want to try to not have a conversation and this is kind of like the background conversations we would sometimes have not on the air, but what are the kind of like, what are the conversations that we can have that can take a different approach on this story? Um, and I, I got to thinking about the idea of like storytelling and craft um, because one, we have a professional storyteller here and two, we have another professional storyteller here. Um, and <laughs> so, so I got to thinking, you know, last week, Jonathan mentioned that Rip Van Winkle felt more like a scenario, I think you said, or a situation, situation than it did a full story. So I'd love to talk about 
whether or not an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge is a full story and why, and like look a little bit of, at what Ambrose Bierce does from a storytelling perspective, from a craft perspective. And I think that that can lead us into uh, to some other to some other conversations. But Jonathan, can you can you kind of talk about that? You mentioned the situation, the Riffin Winkles situation. Does an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge meet your standard for a story as opposed to a situation? And if so, why? Um, okay. Uh, or no, I, why not? Yeah, I, I'm having a, I don't know. Um, it's the first time I read this, even as a high school kid, I just felt like it was a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Um, the surprise ending, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to put my finger on what I didn't like about it. Then, um, I've opened my mind a little bit more just in the la- just in preparation for this week. I've decided, you know, if we're going to be talking about it for 45 minutes or an hour, I, I, it's not enough for me just to say it's a gimmick and I don't, don't like it. And as I looked into it, I found things to admire and things that I still am not, not too crazy about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think my, this time through for me, it's, it's a question of, um, in, in a in a good mystery story, I, David, I've heard you refer to this as a mystery story, and I wouldn't have used that language, but but it makes sense. I mean, that, now that you, you know you use that term, and I I, I understand that usage. Um, but in a good mystery story, it's I don't see the ending coming, but once it's come, I can go back and see. Oh yeah, I did have the clues. Yeah. I just wasn't paying attention. Right, and I'm not sure that's quite. I'm not sure that's quite true here. I mean, it's when I, when I read, if I'm I'm reading really carefully and I know what's going on, I I know how it's going to end. I can see the ways that he's um, given us some clues to, to see that this is all a figment of, of uh, Peyton Farquhar's imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, But man, I I don't get to the end and think, Oh yeah, I should have seen that coming. Um, and but I think the problem is we have an omniscient narrator at the beginning mm-hmm. and a narrator that I trust. Mm-hmm. And then and I can see what you know, my third time through, I can see, oh, here's where we shift from the omniscient narrator to a, a, a close um yep. third person narrator. Yeah. Um and once I'm, I'm the, really glad you brought this up because now I don't have to. Okay, good. <laughs> no, but but I don't think it's quite fair to to start with a with a omniscient narrator and then the whole thing be the whole mystery revolve around the fact that our narrator is not omniscient so and that, that's what bothers me about this story tim, the, and then there are lots of things i like about this story but that does bother me yeah yeah tim thoughts on that i i think jonathan's right and to be honest i didn't notice that and just to like help our our listeners, you're, I'm right in saying, Jonathan, that we have an omniscient narrator at the beginning because the opening sentence or the opening paragraph, uh, a man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water 20 feet below the man's hands. And then it just describes, it describes the man, it describes these sentinels that are on opposite sides of the bridge, it describes the, on, it describes the onlookers, but we're not, the, the action is... Um, from a distance, it's yeah, very not closely t- tied to 
the man who's about to be hung. And we don't really get into his skin until after the sergeant steps away from the plank that's holding him up. Is that, is that right? Yes, I think that's right. So um, I know, you know, we got this off the internet, but I assume it's, does everybody have Roman number one, two, and three? Yeah. Yes. Or not Roman number one, but a, a two and a three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, it, and, and what, what kind of, again, one thing that I, I, that I feel like is maybe not playing by the rules of mystery is at the end of section two, the last sentence is he was a federal scout which is something an omniscient narrator would say is something that Peyton Farquhar to this day doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And so, and so part two ends with, with a gesture toward omniscience mm-hmm. and then part three to the end all depends on the fact that, that, that we're seeing things through Peyton Farquhar's, uh, you know, his, not just his, his vision, but his confused vision. If confuses, I don't know if confuses is the right word, but it's unreliable um, vision. So we have this very reliable narrator in parts one and two, and then in part three, a completely unreliable narrator. And, and, okay, so, and that's in, that's the flaw you're saying. That feels cheaty to me. Why do you think it feels cheating? And I don't mean like, I don't mean that you need to explain everything you just explained. Okay. I'll, well, put it, I mean, I'll put it, I'll put it this way. Do you think that it's possible that like with the story last week, we're kind of, we have two extra, almost 200 extra years of literary evolution. Yes, I do. think yeah. so. Yeah. I, I think the, I think the rules around this kind of thing had not solidified. In, yeah, in eighteen seventy-eight or eighteen, what is it, eighteen ninety-one or whatever it was, I wrote it down somewhere. Originally published in eighteen ninety. Uh huh. I I think that's part of it. When was Poe? Uh, when was Poe doing his thing? Uh, well, Poe was eight. What eighteen eighties? Eighteen? I think because uh, he was eighteen seventies and eighties. I think. Just yeah, right that's after the Civil War. Yeah, yeah he fought. He fought yeah. in the so yeah. They were they were roughly contemporaries. I think they even knew each other a little bit. He, oh no! Wait a minute. It says he died in 1849. I'm googling as we speak. I don't think that's right, <laughs> but I guess it must be. Well, it's it's just you know, sometimes the internet's wrong. Um. Huh. Oh well. So so that would suggest that it was a that he. I mean, even Poe gets a little, you know, dodgy. I mean, I guess his... it, yeah, it must be right. Yeah. So, Jonathan, it's you think it's cheating because there's sort of an inconsistency in the in the proximity of the narrator to the main character. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I like an unreliable narrator as much as anybody. I, I really, I love those kind of stories where, where you feel the gap grow between yeah. you, your understanding and, and the narrator's understanding. Um, what's, what feels cheaty to me is that he establishes a narrator that we should be able to trust. And then, and then without, I completely missed 
that, oh, this, this is a different, really different narrator. Starting in part mm-hmm. three, it's mm-hmm. really a different narrator. It's mm-hmm. as if it's as if part one and two are told by one narrator and part three, it's not as if it's true. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that doesn't feel, uh, from what we know that, you know, as, as the rules of mystery have solidified, yeah, that's yeah. then you're not, you know, you just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you sounded like, you sounded like my mom. And when I, you know, I don't know, like curse the neighborhood dog or something. We just don't do that, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but do y'all agree that that's not, it's not fair to, to, I mean, when the whole thing revolves around this, this illusion, do y'all agree with me that it's not fair to give the reader the impression that we do have a, a reliable narrator? Yeah. Can I pick that apart a little bit? Because I, I think it's a failure of technique. So I agree with you there. Or it's a shortcoming of technique. I don't know mm-hmm. that I would call it, you know, a colossal failure. <laughs> yeah. I think that when I, I like unreliable narrators also. I love it when they lie to me. Just keep mm-hmm. lying to me. <laughs> I think when I, when I think of an unreliable narrator, I think of someone who's um, deliberately withholding information from me so that his version of the story or his character uh, is the one that I hear. And he, he's going to benefit from it. I, I don't know if this is the best example, but um, the narrator in Notes from the Underground by Dostoevsky. Yeah. I feel like he's constantly lying to me. And I know probably within the first page, he's lying to me so that I come alongside him. And like, I see the world that he, the way that he sees the world. I don't get the feeling about this narrator. I, so I don't feel like he's withholding information from me or spinning a yarn so that I come alongside him and think more highly of him. Instead, there's this question of, why are we getting all of this instantaneously kind of bizarre narration about um, surviving? Is it because this is what he is dreaming in that split second before he suffocates or that his neck breaks? Is it because is he thinking this like on the rope ride down? I mean, why exactly are we, are we getting this? Yeah. Okay. So we, I want to, I want to touch on that in a second. I want to kind of come back to it. Yeah. Sure. A little bit of a roundabout way. It, I want to, okay. So Jonathan used the words cheating and he used the words unfair. So I got me thinking, I actually, I think about this fairly regularly, actually, when I read, are those the same thing? Mm. Like, I mean, we say that he's cheating and I agree that he's cheating to keep up the illusion, like to create the illusion. Right. Mm-hmm. So he, I mean, he's cheating more like a magician than he is like most literary people do when they're creating an illusion. He's just directing our attention elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, but is that the same thing as it being unfair to the reader? So to, to sort of redirect the reader's attention or whatever, to, is that, is it, is that, is it, are you being unfair when you do that as a storyteller? Right. Jonathan, I, I'd be curious, like you use those words kind of interchangeably. I, it felt like to me, and I don't know yeah. that I'm not saying you're wrong or that you're right. I'm, I'm genuinely yeah. asking a question that I think we're thinking about. Well, think about, I mean, I'm, some of our listeners may not have seen The Sixth Sense, so I don't want to give away the ending of that. <laughs> but, but 
the, at the in the Sixth Sense movie, there's a there's a twist at the end, and which I completely didn't see coming. Right. And then as as I go through the second time, you know, watch it a second time. Actually, I haven't watched it a second time because I was so scared that I wouldn't go in the basement. I was a married man with kids, and I wouldn't. <laughs> For a little while. <laughs> and um, and the, um, what was I starting to say? Oh, but but the, all the clues were there. I just I just missed them. And I, it felt fair and it, it felt like yeah. a fun trick. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, maybe that's what, maybe there's, maybe there's a difference between like tricking an audience, a reader of you or whatever, into an experience or, or a res or some kind of recognition of something as opposed to cheating them. Would you say that cheating and tricking are two different things? I mean, I was definitely, I was certainly using them synonymously. Che- cheating and tricking is the same thing. Well, no, no I'm sorry. No, I, I wasn't saying tricking was, I was saying cheating and unfair. No cheating and tricking. No, I, I, I like a good, a good trick. Right. Okay. Um, Cheever's story, The Swimmer. Yeah, right. I, yeah, that's, right that's actually right. a story I thought about doing on this show. Oh, that'd be fun. There were a few. Yeah, reasons. I, I love that story. And it's, it's, I think that's a perfectly fair trick. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's say if you've never read The Swimmer, you should stop right now. It's not very long. You should Google it. Or, yeah. or if you care about spoilers, go read it and then come back to it. Come back to us. If you don't care about spoilers and you haven't read it, just carry on. Um, it's readily available on the internet. So that's, that's cheaper from like what, 1968 or something. I found it on the internet anyway. That's right. So, okay. Let's compare and contrast. What does Cheever do in the swimmer that feels more fair and just to the reader than what Beers is doing here in Owl Creek Bridge? Uh, Cheever never um, does anything. Never you slowly realize how unreliable this narrator is, but you realize he's been that unreliable from the start. There's no okay. point at which suddenly we've got a new narrator, which we do in Ambrose Beers. And when we talk, you know, when it, is it helpful to, to sort of talk about when you're talking about narrators in this way, talking about perspective, is yeah. that what you're kind of getting at? Yeah. Um, for some, you know, I remember in some classes I had that when we talked about narrator, the way, they would get people confused. So what we're talking about is perspective and like the perspective never changes in the swimmer. It's you're always in the head of one particular person. Right. And so somewhere along the line, we realize, wait a minute, this guy's not. Yeah. He's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And so I realized, Oh, I misunderstood the nature of this narrator. And it's because you spent time with that person that you begin to realize it. Yeah. Right. Okay. And this is actually, if if you read the first few pages of this and you think you're a, an omniscient narrator, you're right. You didn't misunderstand that. Yeah. So do you, do you guys think that, um, that the story could have been accomplished or do you think that the nature of the story is such that you could not both abide by the rules of um, having a kind of like something close to a first person narrator and also accomplish the kind of magical 
surprise at the end? Um, or do you just think, nope, can't, you just can't pull that off. He, he kind of had to cheat. I mean, the, the last line has to be a non-mission narrator, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, this is, this, you know, the, the, the la- just like the last line of Aquaman. Or, or it has to just end. Yeah, I guess it could do that. I mean, yeah, that's just end, and then you in, and then you intuit what happens. You infer that. Yeah. Oh, he, but that, he also, actually did that die. feels manipulative too, though, right? Yeah, because you're not offering a resolution. Not yeah, true. I mean, I, you are, but not not an emotional resolution. Right. Yeah, but I think except for the last line, Tim, I think you can. Yeah. Do it the way Cheever did it in the swimmer. So you would just need to start the story much closer to our condemned man. We would need to be standing yeah, on the only show now. what he can see through his own yeah, eye. Yeah. And, and that's easy to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't have to, um, you, you, you couldn't say that the scout turned out to be a, or that the, 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 the Confederate, the, the person who sent him to the bridge, you can't specific, you, you couldn't say he turned out to be a federal scout unless it's something he discovered later. I guess you could. Uh-huh. Right. Right. But yeah, he didn't have to, he didn't have to, to do this what was the term you used him bad bad form or bad bad whatever. technique bad technique he didn't have to have the bad technique to yeah. accomplish what he accomplished here yeah okay Maybe no. on the other hand I, I don't know too much about the history of the unreliable narrator it may well dostoevsky had had, had already you know written what he had written at this point so yeah but did it make it over from russia yet right right was <laughs> <laughs> it in broad translation in uh yeah, Tennessee at the time. Yeah, I mean the term wasn't coined until the '60s, though 1960s. So I didn't know that. I mean, the way of thinking about it, I'm pretty sure it was coined in the '60s by Wayne Booth, wasn't it? I don't, I don't know. That's the kind of thing I don't know. That's um, yeah. Um, and so like I mean, there's a way of you know once you start naming it, the way you think about it becomes very different, right? That's true. Yeah. So we, the, the, until you've named it, the rules don't get established, which is, you know, I said that earlier. Um, I, I'm curious, what do you think that we'll come back to what, to what we're talking about here. Um, but what do you think that Beers's goal was with this story? Like what, I mean, is he just trying to create a situation that tricks the reader or is there something else going on here that he's trying to do? Because I think if we can I could kind of point at some possibilities for that, then we can come back around to some of the flaws in it and see if those flaws yeah. are minimized by what his goals were and whether he accomplished them. I, Cause I do share the frustrations with, with both of you um, and then see then I think there are some flaws, but I'm also wondering if, if does he manage to accomplish what he set out to do despite those flaws? When, when, we, when I finished the story, that was the first question that I asked myself, David, I thought, why did he tell this story? I mean, there, there are parts of it, oddly enough, the parts from the omniscient narrator that, I felt like they were really educational for me. You know, I just feel like there's a glimpse into kind of the rules of war um, from a kind of from a civilian's point of view, from the army's point of view. And I feel like his journalistic approach to that opening section was, it was good. I really, I thought the writing was very strong. Um, but once we got into the magical turn where we think that he is surviving this hanging, but he's really not. And we get to the end and he has actually died. I, I closed the book and I thought, why? Why did he do this? And I don't have an answer other than I'm sure the obvious thing is 
he wrote a good story to give pleasure to his readers. And I think he's fairly successful in that regard. But broadly, I don't know that I can give an adequate answer. I think it, it maybe has something to do with the fact that uh, we have this, uh, we have war that is um, systematized, formalized. You know, he says things like they had, they had a rule for hanging everybody, including mm. planters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Li- the liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons and gentlemen are not excluded. And so he, he's, this man is mixed up in this, in this system, this thing, this, you know, war as a, as a concept or war as a, um, I, I, I can't quite put my finger on what I'm trying to say, but in the mid, the, so he's a cog in a wheel and yeah. yet his life is very rich and very, there's a lot going on in his inner life that is, that is snuffed out, you know, mm-hmm. as part of this machinery. Yeah. You know, Chickamauga, for instance, where Ambrose Bierce you know, served, uh, the guy who discovered the rings of Saturn got shot dead. Uh. Um, or yeah, I don't know if he he was on the team that, that found the, the rings of Saturn, and that just Sidney Coolidge was his name, a man from Massachusetts. And I took the tour at, at Chickamauga, and that was the moment that I just wanted to just sit down and cry. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know Ambrose Bierce was there. He survived, but who didn't? You know what? Yeah. What? What writers? What? What people as brilliant as Ambrose Bierce got shot in the head and didn't survive? Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's what I was thinking about as I was thinking about this, this life that was snuffed out in this story, such a small, it was such a small thing um, for the, you know, all's fair and love and wars, as it mentioned somewhere, the way he put it, um, I don't know where it is now, but, um, but in that, in, in that machinery, this is what it's, it's not just, it's not just, you know, uh, biological processes that are stopping, but it's these, these lives, these very rich lives. That's a great answer, Jonathan, because it does. I mean, what happens when he supposedly escapes is he sees nature in this vibrant, unique way. He, he um, sees, he has this wonderful line about uh, the trout, splitting the water yeah and yeah and then he he makes it to the woods and what does he want more than anything else to be back with his wife and with his little ones and so yeah that's a great explanation for what this story is about that this rich inner life of this man who shouldn't be subject to these great mechanistic gears of kind of the new form of war or maybe it's just against any war broadly mm-hmm. yeah what does he want he wants he he's a person he's a human being he wants mm-hmm. to be with his wife and his family he has this rich inner life and it's just being snuffed mm-hmm. yeah do you, so let's go back to the formal creative choices that he made that were kind of uh, picking apart a little bit. Do you, do you think that that choice either helps or diminishes his ability to get at those ideas? Like, in other words, I, maybe the question self-explanatory, but in, 
in uh, uh, presenting this sort of cheat or whatever, does it somehow enable him to to do it or to accomplish what we're what we're saying here um, hmm. by by turning inward into the character's head? So we have this omniscient narrator, and then we turn inward. Um, does that allow him to to do that? And would it? I mean, maybe it would have been. Let's just say maybe you know. Let's accept the assertion that it might have been better to just do that from the very beginning. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, I, really, when we think of it in those terms that, that we just put it in, I, I can be a little more forgiving toward that that um, you know formalistic error, whatever, whatever language we're using. Yeah, uh, you know, if we're saying here's what it looks like from the outside and here's what it looks like from the inside, maybe so. Maybe maybe that's Maybe that's not inappropriate. I, I mean, I think I still think he could have accomplished what he wanted to without that agreed shift. Um, but you know, again, it's is he maybe John Cheever couldn't do what he did if if Ambrose Beers hadn't done it, hadn't just sort of felt his way through it here. I don't really you know about the history of, of this technique to yeah, to speak. yeah. I mean and that I didn't like, I'm not, I'm asking a question. I don't have like a, yeah. I don't, yeah. When I think about why this was gets included so frequently in anthologies, I, I don't think because it's of such an exemplary quality, it sounds like the three of us kind of agree. Like, yeah, it's, it's got promise, but it's also got some pretty significant drawbacks. M my hunch is that the reason it's so frequently included in, especially American literature anthologies is because it's a step in the development of a new technique. That's the, that's the uh -huh. best that I can come up with is that this kind of, it's like a step toward maybe magical realism. I've heard people use the phrase weird fiction, um, which actually I heard that on the podcast that you and I listened to Jonathan. I'd never heard phrase weird fiction before, but something like magical realism where the ordinary rules are of, of physics and consciousness are bent in such a way, but well, they're just, they're, <laughs> they're bent for what purposes, I guess varies according to the piece of literature, but maybe that's why this is so anthologizes because it's a step in that direction. You beat me to my next question. Darn David. <laughs> because, because, no, I, no, I mean that that's called a transition. So, um, I, I, I wish I haven't been particularly sharing my opinions on it, but I was feeling the same frustrations as a reader and as someone who attempts to write fiction and tell stories on occasion. And I was feeling the frustration, like, like there wasn't a consistency of voice, which I think is something that maybe is bothers actual writers more than readers sometimes. Um, and there wasn't a, you know, the narrative structure was kind of ill-defined and so forth. But then I got to thinking, so why, why for 120 yeah. years have everybody, has we been reading this? Like, why is this so anthologist? Why does everyone feel the need to read it? What is it about it? Like, what is it capturing clearly about being alive and then not being alive that, um, that matters so much to people for so long? And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it on the show because it's the kind of story that's like it's 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 not a perfect story, um, but it is definitely 
it is a story that has captured the imagination of a lot of people. And it's a story that is a particularly American story in a lot of ways. Like it's captured particularly the American imagination. So why is that? I mean, why does it matter given that it maybe formally at least is not that good? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one, one answer to your question is that it's easy to teach. And so it, it gives a 15-year-old, for instance, an opportunity to talk about point of view. You know, a, a high school kid who's not that into literature can go, oh, okay, now I see what you mean. By right. So it's, it gives um, sort of easy examples of archetypal ideas that everybody needs to know about. Yeah. Which is an okay reason for, for a thing to be anthologized. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it gets, a, is there anything about it that's getting it like, human existence that is cap that actually captures people's imagination or is it purely valuable for just purely formalistic teach this basic thing reasons and tim you can jump in as well i mean i i think a soldier returning to war wanting to be reunited with his wife i mean like which is the the climax of the story right before he's the, about the to longings her. yeah oh yeah. yeah i mean war is such a I mean, it's almost like the constant state of affairs in human civilizations and the soldier returning, returning from war, um, is almost archetypal. The longing to be back home, the longing to be with the one who knows you. The yeah, longing it's the, it's the odyssey. If he actually gets yeah, yeah. killed along by the siren. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and there is something really, one of the things that he does pull off here, I think, like, I don't know if he's formally, I don't know if he's that, that, that good. I don't know if it's structurally that good, but he manages to capture sort of the tragedy of, as of what Jonathan was talking about earlier of like imagination being destroyed. Mm-hmm. I was going to say snuffed out, but I mean, it's destruction. Right. Um, yeah. And there's something sacred about the human imagination and mm-hmm. the ability to see the world so vividly it was the word that you used him and he manages to capture that like there's some lines there's some paragraphs of prose that are you know per- perhaps they're very 19th century but they're also really beautiful um and that, that i think that also probably is part of why it's lasted because you can look at those particular the couple scenes a couple lines and you can say this captures something about the man at war um and what is lost like it mm-hmm. speaks to and, and explores the tragedy of of just a simple, I mean, I'm using simple, as I'm choosing that word carefully, a simple execution, right? Like it's not a simple thing, but it's done as if it's a simple thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a tragic thing every time it happens. Yeah. Whatever, whatever side you root for. Yeah. Um, and it's done according to protocol. It's done, you know, there, there's, there are these rules are how it's supposed to go. And, you know, if you don't know how to go, open up your book and open up your little military guidebook that tells you. Exactly. Yeah. We got this guy, we got to kill him. We got to kill him this way. There's an execution. So chap it's a section (laughs) 4.3 dash two. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, now I'm feeling self-conscious about launching into 15 minutes of what's wrong with this story because it really is great that there really is a lot to love about this story. (laughs) No, I think, I think, um, you know, we have to be willing to be, you know, critical and, you know, started there. 
Uh, Tim, is there anything in particular, you know, I, I often ask, are there any lines or whatever that are particularly, you know, your blues, my dad calls them blues because he always highlights things that he just loves in blue. In blue. Uh, is there anything that... Uh, I, I had a couple of things. One of them I mentioned earlier when we were talking about kind of how Farquhar sees the world, how he kind of like, he, he sees nature anew. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't give you a page number because I just took it from the internet. Um, but he's in the river. He has not gotten into the woods woods yet. He's no longer being shot at and he's, he's going, he knows he's going to escape with his life. Uh, he noticed the prismatic colors and all of the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of gnats that danced upon the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragon's wing, dragonflies wings, the strokes of the water spiders legs like oars, which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its parting, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. That last sentence for me, I thought was really beautiful. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That you use the term magical realism, and there is certainly a sense of that kind of Mm. going on in the story. Do you, do you think, so he's on this bridge, right? And he's about to get executed. And so emotionally he's, there's all this turmoil going on. And then we're in the end, it turns out he's never actually seen any of this. So are we meant to believe that he never has actually seen any of this or like, why is, if, if he's not actually seeing it, it's, it's all in his imagination, right? So what do we conclude about that? What well, the funny thing is, it, sorry, Tim. I think it is all, um, it's, it's accurate. You know, it, I don't know if that's the best way to begin, but I think it's based on true memories that he has had He's, um, I'm taking this as sort of like his life flashing before him. Like literally his life is flashing before him as he drops. And the things that he sees are, they're beautiful. It's a real potent, realistic kind of vision that he has, even Mm. though it's. I do love that idea. That's, that's, that's good. It's dressed up. It's, um, it's maybe it's slightly, his memories are slightly exaggerated but I think it's the real thing. I love the concept of as he's dealing with all this inner turmoil, his imagination turns to beautiful things that he's seen. It doesn't turn to, you know, if his life is flashing before his eyes, it's flashing through a series of the most beautiful images that he's seen. Yeah. It's not necessarily like I went to this place and I fought this guy and then we raised this, like, yeah, it's not, it's, it wasn't the facts of his life. It was the beauty of his life, the beauty that his life took in. His imagination yeah. took in beauty because in the moment of turmoil, it was able to offer a way of seeing the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no politics. There's no North and South. There's no, you know, it's, 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 mm. his life is distilled down to, and, and Tim, I like the way you put it. This is, um, yes, this is an imaginary landscape, but it's, but it's, you know, he would know the road. I assume he would know the road from his plantation to Elk Creek Bridge pretty well. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so he is, he's revisiting his, his life and seeing things that, um, that when we're going, going about our daily business, we don't have time to, to see or to know or to, you know, um, and so I love, I love that idea that, that he's, that he's having this in, intense moment of life. This, this last moment of life is this, this intense life. I love that he uses right the very next, well, no, sorry. The first sentence of that paragraph you just read to him, it says he was now in full possession of his, of his physical senses, but then it says they were indeed preternaturally keen and alert, you know, preternaturally meaning like they were, I think the Latin for that is they were beyond natural. They yeah. were, they were beyond what is, you know, maybe it speaks to that idea of they're beyond what was actually there. Like there was something, maybe he was making them richer than they were, but there was also like richer meaning to what's just right there in front of him, like to the, to the, to the everyday. Yeah. But then he comes and, to the surface. And I do think, I think that was a nice little bit of technique. We've been critical of him, but I think the opening paragraph, he was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. And then he starts to show that the things that the man is seeing are not the sorts of things that a man ordinarily sees when in full possession of his physical senses. They're, they're, Hmm. Hmm. you know, they're a step beyond what he would ordinarily see. And I think that's to me, I'd, I'd have to revisit the story, but, I highlighted the section that I read thinking this is the first time that I think if I didn't know, if I were reading the story for the first time that I might recognize, huh, this doesn't seem quite right. Maybe he's not truly escaping. Maybe this is a, maybe this is imagined. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are certainly clues that if you look really careful, care, you know, the, the first one is he looks down at the water and, and it looks sluggish. Yeah, and we've been hearing from the from the you know, what we've been what we've been hearing is that the river is rushing, and then when he looks down, it's sluggish, um, and that's a clue. There's something weird about his perception. Um, well, and there's and, the idea of like he loses consciousness. I think it's more the idea of time really slowing down. Yeah, yeah, and so like in the Matrix, you know, when the when the bullets are coming at <laughs> yeah. it slowly, yeah. That kind of thing. It's interesting though that it goes, well, I don't know why I said though. It's interesting. It's also interesting that it goes from, he sees all this beautiful nature and then you get this whole, the bullets are all rushing past him and everything. So he, part of his imagination is him being under the water and the terror of being shot at. Yeah. Um, And the bullets whizzing by and splashing in the water and the people hearing the, seeing the gray eyes of the sniper. Um, So what do you make of that part? So his senses, also his his imaginings, his life kind of flashes before his eyes, perhaps, and then he gets this part of his imagination of his imaginings. What do you make of that part, either of you? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, so, with the two, David. Okay, so part of the his imaginings is the stuff that we're talking about, right? This beautiful nature and all that, and then all of a sudden, in his imagination, he comes up out of the water. And in his imaginings, these oh, that's still his imagination. Yeah, that's still his imagination. It's not. That's not real. That's that's actually he's a mm-hmm. he, the whole. The only real part is he's standing on the bridge. Yeah, and then they hang him. And so in the meantime, he imagines all this beautiful stuff, and then he imagines trying to escape and being shot at. So is that part 
is there some deeper meaning other than it's him imagining like his fear is kicked in and he's trying to he imagines himself trying to escape or is there something deeper going on there as there is when in the part where he's imagining all his beauty uh well it's he's odysseus isn't he i mean you know trying to get home through through dangers and toils and snares Hmm. um i one thing that's that's one thing i I remember really he's hector he's never gonna go home yeah right um i uh, uh one thing i remember what i was in high school so 30 years ago when i read this story i was it made such an impression on me this idea that he um because he had the noose around his neck he couldn't drown because he couldn't inhale any water and the fact that he's so um in that moment is so conscious of the physics of the situation yeah. Yeah. is really strange and and i don't know i don't know what to do i don't know what to do with it but but it made up that that whole everything about the what it would be like to be hanged everything i know about hanging i learned from this story when i was 15 or whatever <laughs> and it has stayed with me completely um and and the second time you know or this time through there was so much about that the physical facts of his of his neck that felt to me like clues since I knew that it was all imaginary, it felt like clues that this is imaginary. So mm. his neck's killing him, but then he kind of whips his neck around to see the people shooting at him. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. You, know, you, you can't, you know, you can do one or the other, but you, you, you can't do both. Yeah. Unless you're in, you're an imaginary world. By the way, did y'all know that, that, it, that bullocks can't penetrate very far underwater? I did not know that. An arrow can, but bullets can't. Really? Uh, I, I Googled it today just, just to make sure I was right about that. But a, a high-power rifle can go about three feet deep in the water, but then if you're shooting at an angle like you would be from the bridge, it, it's not even going three feet. If you're two feet underwater, you're fine. You're well, kidding. two things, two things. This really helps me next time I have to escape from someone. Right. Secondly, yeah. it makes me feel a lot better about uh, all those spy movies that I love, like the Mission Impossible yeah. movies, where they're always diving into the yeah. water and it feels a little bit fishy. It makes no pun intended. That um, <laughs> that uh, makes me feel a lot better about them. So yeah. I'm really glad that you told me that. Yeah, those spy so movies much, are, are perfectly reasonable. So much <laughs> of my movie watching life now, I feel just incredibly. I, I'm going to go watch them all again now. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. We, there, we there's a little section um, about having the bullets graze his face and skin do you, underwater. Do you remember this? Yeah. Um, he must not have been very deep. Yeah. He must not have been very deep. And I, and I, yeah. Anyway. Well, it, the, the way it was phrased in the thing I saw on the internet was that they slow down to non-lethal speeds within three feet. So it could still bump into you. Okay. Huh. You, you, Okay, let's try this. Anybody let's else? Let's try it at the Searcy conference. <laughs> that would be so fun. Get a little dunking tank. <laughs> we're right next to the ocean. <laughs> um, well, we have we're we probably should start wrapping this up. We've been going for an hour and 15, 20 minutes, oh. something like that. So um, I mean, I guess part of that was our small to our banter at the beginning. But um I'll just ask for some final thoughts on this story from either of you. Um, and maybe even some thoughts for anybody who's considering teaching it or whatever, because we did talk about how it is um, perhaps anthologized because of its teachability. Tim, I'll let you go first and then we'll let Jonathan have the last word. I, I feel like we kind of, we kind of beat this story up a little bit. 
And I don't regret that. <laughs> um, but, I, but I, I, do think, I do think it's worth trying to, int- it is a good story to introduce literature to high school students. There. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's flawed, but that it, it's got things that are very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That make for the kind of conversations about literature that are worth having. Yes. Jonathan, and I, I suspect, as we've said before, the what such flaws as it has have more to do with the fact that some rules have solidified around this kind of storytelling in the in the intervening years that causes us to have opinions about this. Yeah. <laughs> but if, I mean, this I, I, I suspect this blew people's minds the first time they read it. I bet yeah. it did. Yeah. yeah. David, um, you've been really good at highlighting during the course of close reads that literature evolves you know we, we've kind of the 20 21st century writers get to stand on the shoulders of giants and look back at techniques that were kind of not fully formed that were a little bit squishy and they get to improve them maybe even perfect them and i think that ambrose beers deserves all of the credit of taking a genuine literary risk. And I think to some degree for the time being successful with it. So that sounds so condescending. Um, I don't mean it to sound condescending. I just think, well, I think he was, he was going beyond the ordinary rules of realism and of straight journalistic representation. He's trying something new. He probably did not have a whole lot of people going before him that had attempted such a thing. And I think he, I think he moved the form along. He moved it forward. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the way we think about literature, the way we study literature, liter, literology, literaturology has, has become so much more, I don't know, formalized. And we've, we've defined things in a way that's very, I don't know, 20th century in some ways, but also very valuable in others. Um, You know, if you look at, if you look at science and you were to say, well, look at what we've, how far we've come in terms of vaccinations or medicine or whatever it is. You don't look at the side. We don't look at the scientists from like 1600 and think, man, that guy was an idiot because he didn't figure everything out. Right. 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 We think, okay, yeah. we think about look what they accomplished and then how that led into what this person accomplished or whatever. Like you look at the Curies, right? We don't look at them and say, we say it's unfortunate that they had mercury poisoning or whatever, but we also look at them and say they didn't know. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, but what they discovered and what they practiced and tried became what we know now. And in some ways, I think literature is different because of how experiential it is and how, like, be, how easy it is for us to just kind of um, judge the value of something based entirely on our experience with it. As, and that can keep us sometimes from looking at the big picture, like the canon that is literature. Yeah. Um, and so keeping the big picture at least offers us at least perhaps some empathy, I think, for writers. Because I'm sure, you know, like I'm Jonathan, I'm sure like in a hundred years when we all know that your books are still going to be read, then 
people are probably going to be like, have discovered some new thing or started doing some new thing that's going to be in vogue then. And they're going to look back and say, well, look at what he did here. That's a little bit like, you know, that, that doesn't jive with the way we do things now. So um, 2016, <laughs> I mean, people, you know, you'll read the same thing about Homer and Shakespeare too. It's like, well, look what he did here. That narrative device is weird. That's, that's, that's yeah. like so old fashioned. Um, and it doesn't, you know, sometimes like sometimes there are narrative devices that evolve and they're better because they evolve. And sometimes it's just the definitions change because our, and the way we, therefore the way we experience them changes. Like we, we just value things differently. Um, and those are, you know, both of those two things are, well, they're valuable in their own way. And it's just, we're in a very specific time and it's easy to think that our, the way we view things now is the, only or the best way. And I'm not saying that you both do that. I'm just saying that's why it's been important to me to be constantly talking about that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that as artists and people who care about art, looking back, like looking at the way things evolve is a great way to think about our own process. Right. Um, Anyway, I just went off for like two minutes on that. (laughs) Well, I'm going to push back on one thing about that, David. Um, you, you made the comparison to the, to the Curies or to, to Newton or, you know, old, old scientists. And we look back and we're, we're generous in the way we think about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also think our science is better than their science. I mean, I think we have good reason to think that, that, that we, you know, see things more clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think in the things we've been talking about with, with his narrative technique, um, I do think the way Tim, you know, the way we've been talking about the way to do a narrator, I do think is better than the way he did it. It's, I don't think it's just a matter of taste or a matter of even chronological snobbery. It's just, now we needed Ambrose beers to kind of move us to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the, the comparison with the Curies is, is a good comparison in that way. Well, and I don't, I, I don't tell. I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just sort of saying it's, this isn't just a, a difference in taste. I really think, Oh, yeah, right, right. Yes. Tell stories. yes, 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 yes. Um, yes. And I, and I, I, you know, the analogy. I took that view what limited. David was saying. Is that not what you were saying, David? Did I misunderstand? I, I, I think I was trying to say that. I think I just didn't get it across. No, you're you're being overly generous to David, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I was feeling like you were sort of moving toward, you know, taste change or, or, you know, we think we're better than them or, or, Oh no, I think maybe I, I think maybe I got into that a little bit by talking about your book. <laughs> oh, Cause I was just yeah, trying to, no, make I, point. I think my illustration went, took me too far afield. Okay. I don't, cause I don't necessarily think it, I was, I wasn't meaning to make a statement about taste. Um, but I, I think we learn more and like, we even learn more like when it comes to creating art, you know, in science, what we learn is, what we have certain goals we're trying to accomplish, right? Like maybe it's, we trying to get rid of eradicated disease or find the way to save someone's life who has some, something, you know, something chronic or whatever. Um, in the same way as storytellers as storytelling evolves and changes and we learn more, we, we begin to learn about what makes for a more human storytelling experience. Can I put it that way? Yeah. I think think that's, that's right. And then at the same time, sometimes we get off track. In the way yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so so the, the way we tell stories, and, and so it's not a it's not a an, a constant progression, you know, onward and upward. You know? It's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And just so, like science has to have failed experiments to kind of cross those off their list and say, well, we've got to try some, we've got to try a different set of experiments now. And it's the experiments that are successful that move, move the plot forward. And in some ways, that's why the, the Shakespeare, the Homer, the Virgil, the Shakespeare, the Dante, the Poe or Twain or whoever, Dostoevsky, whatever, they shine so brightly because what they do is they, 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 I think I had to put this, they become the next character in that evolution or the next mm-hmm. experimenter. So we say to maintain yeah. our, our metaphor, our analogy, they, they become the next experimenter that gets at something transcendent and, and then thus they shine out. And some people can, ex- they'll experiment with something and they find something, they'll find something good and they'll move it on just a little bit or whatever. But the ones that really stand out, they're, they're getting at something that's like truly transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that they're finding you know, they're the, they're the ones who find the next massive step in eradicating the disease or whatever. Um, and there's a lot of other people that find a little bit of it, but then those people that really shine on the people that are able to kind of take what happened before them. And because of talent and, and probably context and God using them, they move things. They become the Einstein or the Newton or Galileo or whoever you want to rely on, depending on which science you're most interested in, who you actually believe in, accomplished actual stuff and didn't just make stuff up, right? But that is a whole other conversation for our day with Matt Bianco. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I, we should probably wrap it up here. So do you want to have any final, final thoughts by either of you? I don't want to have the last the last word there. None for me. No, I, I, I think we've covered this thing. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me. Um, And of course, thank you to everyone who's been listening and especially those of you, as I said earlier, who are Patreon supporters. We are so grateful for your support, for your your time listening and your time having conversations with us. If you have any questions about the story, feel free to post them over on the Close Reads page and we will try to get to some of them um, as we can. Uh, Maybe we'll just post a little thread for conversation on this one. I saw some people asking if there was going to be a QA and a episode um, for each one. I don't think we can really do that, but we can try to continue the conversation on Close Reads. Tim and and Jonathan, any chance you could be, you'd be interested in having any ongoing conversation with listeners who have questions? Like on the Facebook page? I certainly would. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, not have to spend 20 hours this week on it or anything, but let's see what happens if anyone's got questions. Um, all right. Well, that's, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Close Reads for Jonathan Rogers and for Tim McIntosh and for Angelina and Heidi who are not here with us today. I'm David Kern saying farewell, uh, happy reading, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.